come in. If you will, take your, your copy of the scriptures, turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. As we reach the epilogue of this letter. A letter that's written to a church where there are, uh, there's a false Jesus who is being taught. And uh, we've looked at those doctrinal tests. We've looked at the test for uh, the moral test of doing the, uh, what God commands. We've looked at the relational test of loving one another. Well, this is the epilogue. So he wraps this whole letter up in this last section here. And uh, he, as he closes uh, this book, as we read today 13 uh, through 17, just things to keep your eyes open for, and then we'll walk through these things together. First off, notice he's going to stress again the purpose of why he wrote this book. That's the first thing he's going to do. Second thing, he's going to connect assurance, Christian assurance, with answered prayer. And you'll see that verses uh, 14 to 17. Then, third thing, verses 18 to 20, he's going to summarize a few things that Christians know, all right? And then in verse 21, he's going to give us a, uh, some direction and command. So let's read, starting in verse 13 of chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. This is God's word. So let's just walk through this epilogue. Let's walk through those things that he lays out for us. Notice starting there in verse 13, he states again, here's the purpose that he's written this whole letter to us. We've seen it time and again. We started with it, and now we are ending with it. And that's, he wants you to have assurance of your faith. 
If you're a believer, there's an assurance that you should have as a believer. There in verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So John wants to promote the idea of Christian assurance that you truly know God. You can have assurance of eternal life. You can have assurance that your sins are forgiven. Now that might sound familiar to you. So in another writing of John, his gospel, in John 20, verse 31, John explains to us there why he wrote that gospel. He says in John 20, 31, These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So he did not just write the gospel of John for history purposes, for biography purposes. No, he wrote it with gospel purposes. That you would hear about Jesus of Nazareth and who Jesus of Nazareth is and come to believe in him as the Savior of the world. There was a converting purpose that he wrote the Gospel of John. And now he says, and having heard that, you believe in Jesus. Now he comes to 1 John, 1 John 5, 13, says, now I'm writing to you who do believe. So you've, you've read that first Gospel, you believe in Jesus. Now I'm writing to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you would know you have eternal life. Assurance. You already believe in the Son of God. He wants you to know you can have assurance that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. So we just pause there. Because for a lot of folks, self-included, this is throughout, as, as we grow, as we live, it, it's kind of like this. Varying stages of assurance, sometimes very confident, sometimes I'm asking, what's a knucklehead doing? Am I really a believer? Could a Christian act this way? And that's kind of our lives. We do that. Different points and different times in our life. Well, John is saying, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you may know that you have eternal life. I wonder if you know that today. I wonder if you do have eternal life. Are you trusting in Jesus? If you're not, that's the first matter of priority. Believe in him. Trust in him. As he's offered to us in the gospel, he has borne the wrath that you rightly and justly deserve. Repent of your sin. Trust in him. But if you trust in him, know this, you can have full assurance that your sins are forgiven. You can have full assurance that you have eternal life. John wants the Christian, the person who trusts in Jesus Christ, to have a robust assurance of the faith. He writes to strengthen assurance. Now, sometimes we don't talk that way usually, right? But assurance is important. He's trying to strengthen uh, this church's assurance of their faith. It's important, but it's not automatic. It doesn't always happen like, oh, yeah, my sins are forgiven. I know it. Great. We're to cultivate it. 
we are to grow in that. John is writing to strengthen their assurance. So when you put John and 1 John together, you see he was writing here so they believe, and then he writes 1 John that they have this assurance, and he gives these tests to say, oh, yeah, I am God's child. I, can, I have confidence. He lays out, right, how to live out your life as God's child. He, he, he lays that out for us. Here's what living the truth looks like. And I can be assured of the truth through these things. So they've already believed. Now he wants those who believe to have confidence. You may know that you have eternal life. So if you've ever struggled with that idea of assurance of the faith, and I think everybody does, to some measure. I think this is one of the great testimonies of the, of the uh, reality that the Bible is God's very word. So how would someone, how would a man 2,000 years ago know that today, because I acted like a fool at work, I was going to struggle with my assurance? How, how could a man know that? Well, a man could John couldn't know that. But the Holy Spirit, who moves John to write, knows that you and you and you, you will struggle at various times with whether or not you're God's child. Even though you believe, even though you've, you've trusted in Christ, you will struggle with assurance. And the Holy Spirit gives us the Word of God. 2,000 years ago it's written. So that us today, when we struggle with assurance of our salvation, we can know. I can know I have eternal life. God, in his infinite wisdom, has laid that out. So you're his precious child. He knows you're going to struggle, and he gives word to help you. That's beautiful. That's what the Lord does. It's one of the great testimonies of the truth of Scripture. And so John wants to see assurance is vital to stability. So it, it provides energy in the Christian life. It gives us some energy in Christian service. There, there should be a growing, robust assurance of salvation in our hearts and lives. So maybe you read 1 John as we've gone through it. You remember back when we started, we just read the whole book together. Maybe you say, this has been a hard book. This is difficult. This, this book forces me to do some soul searching, some self-examination. And we've done some hard self-examination. But John's purpose was not to discourage you, but to encourage you. Not to raise doubts into your heart, but to confirm faith and to give you assurance as a Christian. I have eternal life, and that life is in the Son. And so it's important. It should be a standing concern for us. We probably don't talk about it enough. So do you pray for your brothers and sisters in this congregation that they have assurance of their faith? Something we should pray for. We should pray for one another this way. This is, uh, as we have assurance, we will be more active in serving Christ. 
we will be more active and energetic in serving the Lord. So we should pray for one another in these ways. Even if I don't tell you, hey, I'm struggling with my assurance, I am asking now, would you pray for my assurance? Even if someone else doesn't tell you they're struggling with assurance, are they God's child or not, pray for one another in this way, that their assurance would grow. And not that their confidence would be in themselves, but that their confidence would be in Christ who saves. So that's the first thing. John wants us to grow in assurance. Look at the second thing. He connects assurance with answered prayer. Did you notice that? Verses 14 to 17. Here's the impact of assurance in the area of prayer. So as we pray in accordance with God's will, verses 14 and 17, we have this assurance that God hears us, we're his children, we are transformed by this practice of prayer. So what does prayer do? That's often, you hear this question quite often. What does prayer do? Some people say prayer changes God's mind. If that were true, friends, that would be frightening, and you should not go to sleep ever again. If you, as a finite, sinful person, can twist and change the mind of the Almighty, who knows everything, Almighty Maker in heaven and earth, nothing is sure. Some people say that, but we don't. We don't change God's mind. That would be a frightening prospect, as, as fickle as our minds are. Some people say this, well, prayer doesn't change God's mind. Prayer just changes things. Maybe you've heard something like that. Well, not technically, because it's God who changes things, all right? Your prayer was used, perhaps, by the Almighty, but it is God who changes things. Um, some people say this, prayer changes us. Maybe you've heard that. All pr prayer bends us to God's will. And that's true. We do, do learn God's will as we pray. Uh, our hearts are conformed, right, by prayer. That happens. But that's not all that happens in prayer. That does happen. It's not all that happens there. So we don't change ourselves. And we don't merely come in line with God's will. What happens in prayer? We become instruments in the maker's hand. Our prayers are instruments wherein he carries out his will. And he changes things. And he works mightily. It, our, our prayers are the instruments by which God ordains that he works. He uses our prayers. It's amazing. So you read back in Daniel chapter 9. That's what happens in Daniel 9 when he prays. And he prays this prayer that the Israel would return and come out of captivity. That's the very prayer that God uses to bring Jesus into the world. It's absolutely amazing. He uses our prayers as instruments 
to work and to do mighty things. And so John wants us to have confidence, yes, that we're his child, but this confidence affects our prayer life. But he doesn't want us to be presumptuous. Did you notice that? We're not presumptuous in prayer. This is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now listen, verse 15. If we know that we, he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we've, we have the request which we've asked of him. It's almost past tense, isn't it? But don't be presumptuous. Always pray, thy will be done. You pray that way. We have confidence before God. We take our requests. We make them known to him. As we pray, thy will be done. As we ask it, we've received it. Now, you say, that sounds a lot like our friends at another church. Like some kind of health, wealth, prosperity. No, no, no. Because there's no prosperity. You're not, you don't speak things into being by your faith. You don't make things happen. What's going on? I have full confidence. I'm his child. And when he prays, he hears me. He hears me. He answers me. But our prayers are always what? In accordance with his will. We pray in accordance with his will. We're confident in our prayers, but we're not presumptuous. So when we pray things like, Lord, thy will be done, we're not, we're not hedging our bets. You know what I mean? It's not like, yeah, Lord, will you do this? But just in case you don't want to do it, I'm going to say, according to your, what, thy will be done. We're not hedging our bets in case our prayers don't get answered the way we want. That's not what's taking place. Why do we do this? Why do we pray? Yes, we pray with confidence as his child, but why do we pray according to his will? Well, that's how Jesus taught us to pray. Remember how he taught the disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how he instructed us, that we should pray. Not only did he instruct us to do that, he modeled that himself, didn't he? In the garden of Gethsemane, there, he's sweating with drops as of blood, and what's he pray? Not my will, but thy be done. He taught us to pray that way. He models that and now here comes John along, and he says, hey, pray boldly, pray with confidence, but don't pray presumptuously. Always pray this way, in accordance with the will of God. Now, some people, occasionally you hear things like this. As a pastor, I hear this sometimes. Pastor, don't pray, thy will be done. I want you to pray, my son, my wife, my dad, my mom, you pray they get healed. But don't pray thy will be done. Friends, that's unbiblical. Don't ever say that. That's unbiblical. It's unbiblical because Jesus told us to pray that way. And Jesus modeled that we should pray that way. And then John tells us to pray that way. Don't ever try to impose your heart upon the heart of the Almighty. But say, Lord, may my heart reflect what you desire most. 
Pray, thy will be done. Pray. That's how we are instructed to do. So pray in a, confidently, right? But don't pray presumptuously. We say, Lord, thy will be done, not because we lack the faith of our charismatic brothers and sisters and friends. We pray that way because that's the way the word of God tells us to pray. Next thing. Three, three things uh, that, that we know as Christians. Uh, he, he gives us an example of praying, verses 16 and 17. So if you're interceding for someone, you're praying for someone, and in this case, uh, it's someone who's fallen into sin, we ought to be praying for that person, right? We, we should be praying, Lord, turn them back from the sin. Lord, turn them. If, if we pray in accordance with God's will, it's what? That that brother, that sister would turn from that sin and cling to Christ. And we have confidence. God will hear that prayer. Then he adds this statement. I do not say that we're to pray for the one who has sinned the sin unto death. Now, that commentators for hundreds of years have argued about this verse. And I don't know, they've wrestled with it, and we can wrestle with it that morning. So what is he talking about here? Is it this Catholic sense of mortal sins and venial sins? Is that, is that what he's laying out for us? No, I don't think that is. And I, I, we can work out why, perhaps. Is he talking about uh, there are there's some sins that are beyond forgiving, some kind of blasphemy against the Spirit? Is that what he's talking about? Or is he talking about some kind of apostasy? Well, good commentators have wrestled with this. Good Bible preachers and teachers have wrestled with this for years. Sometimes people, and sometimes commentators, and sometimes pastors come to passages like this and say, I don't know what he's saying, but it's just really scary. Maybe that's, same with like Romans 9, right? Ugh, maybe that's kind of scary. Maybe, uh, maybe our application could be, to scare you, but that's not it. That's not what John's pushing at. I think it's much more practical than that. John is writing here in this context where people, they've renounced their faith, they've turned their back on Jesus that the apostles have, have been preaching, the gospel of Jesus, they've turned their back on that, and they've started believing another Jesus, the Jesus that these false teachers were preaching. And he says, if you see a brother falling, falling into sin, intercede for him. So you pray for them. God in his mercy, say, Lord, turn them from their sins. But don't pray this way. Lord, even though that person renounces you, save them anyway. Okay? So he's not so like you pray that a person would be saved, that a person would turn from their sin, the person would cling to Christ. But you do not pray, Lord, save that person whether they repent or not. Because that would not be in accordance with his will. You don't pray, Lord, save that person even though they don't trust in Christ. Because that would not be in accordance with his will. 
You wouldn't do that. You, you, you don't say that. Lord, save that person apart from Jesus Christ. Because there's only one way to be saved. It's through the work in the person of Christ. Don't pray something like that because it's not in accordance with God's will. You say nobody would pray like that. Oh yes, we do. Sadly, we do. Godly Christian women who, whose children have rejected Christ, but they refuse to believe that they reject Christ because they prayed a prayer when they were six years old. They do this. We have friends that we love so dearly and we walk so closely together and then they, they turn their backs on Christ and leave and have nothing to do with Jesus. And we say, yeah, Lord, save them without their turning to Christ. No! He won't. You can't expect those who reject Jesus Christ to be received by God as though they did not reject Jesus Christ. So, simply saying, when we intercede for one another, we don't intercede and ask God to do what he says he won't do, which is to save people outside of Christ. No, we pray in accordance with his will. So he's applying this general principle to a very hard but very practical situation, isn't he? Because how many of us have friends and family that we love, we love with all our hearts, and they don't know who the Lord Jesus Christ is? And we say, Lord, they're so nice. These are so loving. No, always pray in accordance with God's will. Pray that God saves them. But he says them this way, repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord requires of us, how to respond to his saving work. If God is going to save, he's going to save them the way he says he will do it in his word. By drawing them to faith in Christ, not some other way that he doesn't say. So it's tempting, right? Because it's painful. This is hard when we think of lost loved ones or lost friends. We are tempted to pray, Lord, won't you just save everybody? But that's not what God says he's going to do. He's going to save everyone in Christ. And he's not going to save, and if you're here today, he's not going to save you outside of Christ. So look to Christ. Trust in him. There's no salvation apart from Christ. He's said in his word, he won't save any other way. But the Lord is going to hear those prayers that are in accordance with his will, right? He does turn sinners back through intercessory prayers. Isn't that amazing? I even, we had a conversation this week, me and one, uh, another member of the congregation, it's very convicting when we pray for something, but we really don't think it's going to happen. And then when it happens, we're like, whoa, I can't believe it. He does this. He turns sinners back through the use of intercessory prayers. 
but don't expect him to do it outside of the way he says he will do it in his word. Last thing he says. Here's the exhortation. Guard yourselves from idols. That, so after five chapters, that's, he closes with that note. Guard yourselves from idols. Little children, precious ones, guard yourselves from idols. Always be on guard to believe in God. Always believe in the Christ of Scripture. Now, that's not always how we... We don't always think of this word idol fully. We usually think rocks, stones, maybe a little statue at the Chinese restaurant. Uh, yeah, we think things like that. But the word means more than that, right? It's, he's not just talking about some inanimate object. We're far more inclined to worship a God of our own imaginations. To make God look like us and create a Jesus who, who we can tolerate. A Jesus who I like and I would like to have. We create God in our own imagination. Dating myself now. But the Depeche Mode had the song, Your Own Personal Jesus. Well, a lot of us have just made our own personal Jesus. We make him up in our own image. Well, friends, that's an idol. And that was an idol for this church when they started believing a false Jesus that false teachers were teaching about. And that's true for us today. So, when he says keep yourselves from idols, you be sure that the Christ that you trust, the Christ that you love, the Christ that you worship is the Christ of the Bible. The real Christ, the historical Jesus Christ of Nazareth, born of a virgin, born under the law. The substitute for sinners who dies on Mount Calvary. You make sure it's that Jesus. You make sure it's Jesus who rose again on the third day from the dead, according to the scripture. Make sure it's that Jesus. You make sure it's that Jesus who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. It's that Jesus. Not some other Jesus. Little children, guard yourselves against idols. Friends, that exhortation is just as relevant today as it was when he writes the book. This little congregation that's meeting in a house in Ephesus, when they first hear this letter read, they're struggling with that. And people today struggle with that. Do you believe in Jesus? The one who is given to us in this book, the word of God. Or do you read it and say, uh, I don't really like that part. Ooh, but I like this part can't change who Jesus is. You ever seen the Jefferson Bible? This, this pains me as a Virginian. But Thomas Jefferson, literally, he didn't have an exacto knife, but he would exacto knife out all miracles in the Bible or anything supernatural in the Gospels. 
He thought Jesus was a great teacher. And maybe you think Jesus was a great teacher. But he's more than that. He's God. Jesus and that is given to us in this word. Believe in him. And if you believe in him, have assurance that your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life in the Son. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we praise you. We praise you. You are our creator and our redeemer. And you have sent your own Son for our salvation. And you have revealed yourself in your word, and you have made known your salvation to us through your word. And so, Lord, even as we close this book, would you guard our hearts from idols? And may we ever be on watch. May we ever take care to examine and to know that the Jesus we love is the Jesus that your word announces and makes known. And we pray this in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.